know, when you first walked into the police station, I said to myself, there she is, the one that's different. She's not coy or cute or corny. She's a good guy. I'm glad she's on my side. She speaks her mind and she knows what she wants. Thank you, sir. But let me add, I also know what I don't want, and I don't want to be rushed. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rolaine. Each episode of The Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. We are at episode 75 this time around and that is Erica's choice. What have you chosen for us to talk about today? I have chosen In a Lonely Place from 1950, directed by Nicholas Ray, with Humphrey Bogart, Gloria Graham, Frank Lovejoy, and Jeff Donnell. I'm excited to focus on some more things from the 1950s, which I think for both of us is a little bit of a forgotten decade. It is. Out of all the decades in film history, it's probably my least favorite, or at least the one I can quickly recall my favorites from most immediately. And then I remember that Nick Ray is out there, and I'm really excited. Maybe two of those favorites also came out the same year, 1950, Sunset Boulevard and All About Eve. There are always more than I remember when I start looking, but it certainly doesn't spring immediately to the front of my imagination the way the 30s and 40s and 70s do. I'm with you, and the other reason I was excited to get into this one is that it presages a really fun event coming up for us, and that is Noir City Austin. So we're going to be bringing you some wonderful titles from the 40s and the 50s when we cover that event in an upcoming episode. May is turning out to equal film noir for us. We are going to have recurring features about Noir City every time it comes through. We're featuring this, one of the great films noir of all time, and also one of our bonus episodes for our Patreon is coming up, and it's going to be noir-focused as well. One other quick noir plug, this film was written by Andrew Salt, who also wrote one of my favorites, Whirlpool. Our film, In a Lonely Place, is adapted from the story by Dorothy B. Hughes, However, it bears little resemblance to that story, which is wonderful. The film instead focuses on a screenwriter with an alcohol and violence problem who is suspected of murder, and the beautiful neighbor who becomes involved with him. Are we going to get into how different the novel is? I hope you are, right? I am, because I recently read it thanks to you. You got me this really gorgeous set of women crime writers from the 1940s and 1950s, and In a Lonely Place was one of those included in that set, and I definitely want to focus on it. I don't want to harp too much on it for the folks who haven't had a chance to read it yet, but I do think it gives you a unique lens into what Nicholas Ray created. I've got one bit of trivia for especially you, but anyone who wants to come to Austin. Okay. <laughs> Really similar to our Rope episode, it turns out that the original script and a revised script, plus a number of the production stills and photographs from the shoot, are housed at the Harry F. Ransom Center. And that's right here in Austin, and apparently there are a number of other really interesting Nicholas Ray features there. The Ransom Center is a real treat. I don't know if our Austin listeners get over there very often, but they rotate exhibits out on a regular basis. There's a Gutenberg Bible there if you've never seen one. That's pretty incredible. 
David Foster Wallace's handwritten drafts of Infinite Jester there. There's all sorts of really great artifacts, and they frequently do exhibits tied to film. Okay, I lied. There's one other thing I wanted to get <laughs> out of the way before we get into the film itself. And really, it is part of the film because it's the Columbia logo that kicks it all off. I'm hearkening back a little bit to my very, very short film school history class. I think it's really interesting in this period to look at what the different studios were doing. Columbia, for a very long time, was the home of the screwball comedy. Frank Capra made his name there. The big stars were Gene Arthur, Cary Grant, Rita Hayworth, Rosalind Russell, Glenn Ford, one of my favorites, who I will be mentioning later on as well. William Holden, Buster Keaton, The Three Stooges. Columbia was considered one of the little three studios. So that's your extra nickel's worth of show right there. How about we get to the action? Let's do it. We begin with an amazing shot. I think Nicholas Ray and cinematographer Burnett Guffey establish character right away. We see Humphrey Bogart, who is a Dixon Steele, driving, his eyes framed in the rearview mirror, with nothing but the road in front of him. We, the audience, are behind him. No one is in the seat beside him. He's alone. He's accosted right away with another car pulling up to the intersection next to him, recognizing him. This is an actress who was in the last picture that Dixon Steele wrote. The actress's husband doesn't like this, and immediately Dix is ready to get out and fight. Not just fight, but hurling particularly vicious insult calls the guy a pig, is ready to fight mid-intersection, not just fight. So he's got a bit of a temper. Definitely. When he arrives at Paul's, which looks to be a Hollywood hotspot, probably a Romanoff's equivalent. A brown derby type place. There's a kid asking for an autograph outside just because. He doesn't know who Dixon is. Dixon does it anyway. And inside, his friends, including his agent Mel, have been waiting for him. They're trying to pitch him a new project based on this book, an epic, the coat check girl calls it. They're trying to get him to go back to work. But he says very clearly right away, he won't do something that he doesn't like. And he essentially berates the others, these industry professionals, for being essentially popcorn salesmen. And it's already an interesting play on the Bogart persona. We're used to him being noble, tough, forthright, but it's never delivered with bitterness like this until now. As a phenomenon, as an entity... He is extremely interesting in the way his career takes a turn right here. He was at the beginning of his third act in life, it feels like, with this film. He was established mainly in a series of gangster pictures for the Warners in the 30s. He became the new George Raft when the Maltese Falcon came out and moved into legit, true leading man mode in the 40s, and also began his collaboration on and off screen with Lauren McCall. Then this came in 1950 and marked a significant turning point where the roles that followed showed us a more varied and vulnerable Bogart. Big and or interesting titles were still on the horizon. African Queen, Beat the Devil, The Barefoot Contessa. But this one is the most interesting of all of these to me. I know that he was incredibly excited by this screenplay. He was trying to insist that they just shoot it as is, though Nicholas Ray revised it constantly throughout the shoot. Bogart believed so much in it that his own production company put this out. He had also really been pressing for Lauren Bacall to play Laurel, 
And Louise Brooks said that this was the character most closely aligned to Bogart himself. What do you think about the prospect of Bacall? Because I really don't see anyone but Gloria Graham now doing this. I'm completely with you as well on that one. I cannot envision anyone else in the part. I think Gloria Graham was born to play this. But in fairness to Gloria Graham, she was born to play a whole lot of parts. I think that Bacall still would have come off too young to me. Even though their relative youth and the difference in their age in particular is crucial? It is, but as you just mentioned that, that's also possibly a little shading of the book coming into play with my opinion because I'm thinking about her doing the rounds of the studios as we begin to learn a bit about later on. And you can also see that she's maybe just a little bit old at this point. Whereas I think Bacall still would have looked like it was wide open in front of her. And Gloria Graham had that quality. It was a studied quality of remaining expressionless because she wanted us to interpret what she was thinking and feeling. And in Bacall, sometimes it strikes me as not emotive. But back to all of these potential parallels and connections, Bogart really liked working with Nicholas Ray as well. This was, in Nicholas Ray's words, the second time he had taken the gun out of Bogart's hand, and Bogart loved him for it. Now, because everyone in this film seems to possibly have a parallel in real Hollywood life, do we think that maybe Dix is Nicholas Ray? Or should we reserve that for now? I don't think we have to reserve it. I think it's pretty clear that it is a hybrid of both men. It is Humphrey Bogart and Nicholas Ray. Some of their worst qualities rolled into one. Good point. So back at Paul's, everyone is still pushing really hard for him to adapt this novel. And in order to meet this deadline that he's agreed to, his agent is going to come by at 11 o'clock to discuss the book. He asked the coat check girl who was so enthusiastic about it in the first place, Mildred Atkinson, to come to his house and tell him the story. She agrees, and when they get back to his apartment, this is the first time we meet Laurel Gray, played by Gloria Graham. She's right behind them, all we hear her say is, excuse me, as Dix and Mildred go up to his apartment. There's a really interesting section here in terms of the camera work. At one point when Mildred is really into this story, which by the way sounds like something Douglas Sirk might have made several years after this, the camera is moving away and to the side as she's talking, and then she speaks right into the camera as if we are dicks. And then we get that same separation back again as we're watching both characters. Two things in particular that come to mind right away when I'm watching this section. One, if it had been anyone but Nicholas Ray, Mildred would have been cast completely differently. And two, yes, this odd switch to the subjective point of view from Dix and what it represents. I have a very particular idea about that. Do you have anything in mind as far as what it's supposed to indicate? You know, I'm really going back and forth on it. I want to hear what you think. To me, it is the exact moment at which he decides to abandon the seduction of this girl. We're in his head, seeing what he sees, and what he sees is not worth his time and energy. Once he gets a good look at her and spends a little bit of time with her, he pulls the ripcord right away. He doesn't even have the patience to listen to her synopsis of this dumb book. That makes perfect sense, and I really hadn't thought of it in that way before. So back to your first point, how do you think this role would have been cast if it had been anyone else directing? I feel like whoever they would have gotten for the role if it had been someone else would have had that particular 
patina of the business on them. Sort of, I think, the way you're thinking about Lauren Bacall. The affect would have just been somehow wrong. Too jaded, or if playing it wholesome, if playing it corn-fed, too over-the-top in that regard. Because Nicholas Ray's stock in trade is honesty, and I think that is what he is shooting for most with every casting decision, with every rewrite. And I think whomever they would have gotten, if it hadn't have been him, would have been a little bit off, a little less direct, and a little bit more obvious about trying to get their foot in the door. But that brings me to the flip side of this coin, now that we're talking about it. What is Bogart's appeal? Then, his resurgence in the 70s, now... Casablanca obviously nailed it down for audiences at that time, but he is a big pile of intangibles to me. And maybe that's it, that enigmatic can't-put-your-finger-on-it alchemy. When you look at some of our other favorites from the era, William Powell, Joseph Cotton, Cary Grant, Jimmy Stewart, Orson Welles, Dana Andrews, Herbert Marshall, they all have specific qualities that would seem to put them above Bogart in the hierarchy. But he is it. When we look back at cinema history, he is the true king of the 40s. There is no one that ranks higher on the movie star scale than he does for two decades, practically. For me, the appeal is his independence and his idiosyncrasies. That shines through above all. What is it in particular that you see that accounts for him being at the very top of the heap? For instance, how did this much shorter, much less conventionally attractive guy with a slight lisp become the romantic hero for a generation, even above Cary Grant. Well, I know we don't like to buy into stereotypes, especially when it comes to gender roles and how they figure into romantic relationships, but it really seems to me that somebody was believing hard and trying to perpetuate the idea that young girls should fall in love with dangerous people with very dark sides. Do you mean just in this film or as a general rule throughout the 40s? as a general rule throughout the bulk of his acting career. Because maybe you can change him? I don't know. I respond to that uncompromising nature when he's on the right side. But really not much else. I can't see myself being really drawn to him as a person. And that idea of loving the wrong person, I blame him and I blame James Cagney, though I buy it with James Cagney because he's a dancer. Well, it might be fun to be able to hoof it that way, or be as witty and urbane as, say, William Powell, but ultimately, wisecracks don't feed the Admiral's bulldog. And so, like you, I am responding to this straight-shooter persona, ultimately. I put him in that same class, I guess, as Spencer Tracy, of guys that you can count on when the chips are down, and that's a very carefully cultivated image, I understand, but the consistency with which he puts that feeling across to an audience for 75 films over the course of several decades can't be a coincidence, I don't think. Tough, noble, tender, and all in a manner somehow unlike anyone else. I think about all of those many instances where he never smiled while probably staring off into the middle distance and Again, I think that must have inspired and reinforced this idea of there's something deep within him. If only I could touch it. Generations to Come certainly responded to it. Jean-Paul Belmondo, just as one example. I was reading an interesting interview with a young student that was attending a Bogart Film Festival in 1964 during the first revival of his career. And she observed with a sigh that he gets involved with women but doesn't go through an identity crisis every five minutes. 
Did she nail that? If so, is it even more relevant today than it was in 1964 when she gave that interview? Would he have been in one of the Twilight movies now? It's a very specific type of masculinity that you do not see on screen anymore, definitely. DiCaprio, Gosling, they certainly don't have it. And it becomes a double-edged sword in this particular case. This movie is the most complex treatment of that idea in his whole career. But would modern audiences even respond to it? Would they think it was too much of a throwback? Outmoded? Is he more important as this icon of classic cinema and a draw to get people to revisit that era? More important than finding a way to slot him into the contemporary cinematic landscape. We don't need him to be upgraded. We need Bogart 1.0 always. I'm thinking about that idea of generational relevancy, and what occurs to me, I don't mean to keep beating this down, but it really seems like a lot of people have, and had, daddy issues. They're responding to this remote nature inside of him that must have recalled something within them, within their own histories. So he enters the pantheon of Wes Anderson patriarchs after James Caan, after Gene Hackman, If we bring Bogart back today, he's in an immaculately appointed townhouse that is production designed to within an inch of its life. Well, there's something really tantalizing in this treatment of Mildred and in the actress's performance. The idea of her reenacting the story by yelling help so loudly that she's not thinking about that there are other neighbors there. All while he watches Laurel across the courtyard. But as you mentioned, he's done with her, so he's going to send her home in a taxi that he's going to pay for, and he's going to go to bed. This is the first instance where the music is deceptive, much more lighthearted, almost a Leave it to Beaver or Ozzy and Harriet theme, much more lighthearted than you would expect from this movie. There's a lot of underscoring that feels really intrusive in certain parts through this section but then taken as a whole seems to work so well to subvert your expectations. So we're really only in the first section and we're already set up for something pretty brutal. We have this view of Hollywood that everyone is striving, undercutting each other, dying by inches or by yards in the case of our actor, our drunken actor, Charlie. Why do you think that Dixon shows so much true affection for this character? Is it that he sees him as the last of the great men, not belonging to this time that is now just popcorn salesman, like you mentioned? Yes, definitely. I think about Dixon, with all of his faults notwithstanding, as the kind of person who doesn't kick the people on the way down. Robert Warwick, who played Charlie and Humphrey Bogart, had a really interesting connection going all the way back to working together in 1922. They worked on a play together called Drifting, and apparently Robert Warwick was very kind to Humphrey Bogart, who never forgot about it. And when he knew that in this period Warwick was struggling, he asked Andrew Salt, the screenwriter, to write a role for him. So everyone does indeed have an analog in this film. And almost every one of those analogs is an indictment in some way. Even the person that turns out to be the killer in this thing is named after one of the associate producers. Just one of Ray's little jokes. And now it's early the next morning, and Dix is woken very, very, very early, 5 a.m. or so, by his old friend, Brub. Brub is a cop now, and not just any cop, he's a detective. Dix immediately assumes that one of the many fights that he got into the night before had resulted in a complaint being filed against him, but that is not the case. 
At the station, he learns that Mildred, the girl he had sent home, was murdered. He reacts coldly to this news. In fact, barely reacts at all. It strikes me that he is practically petulant at being questioned. He reacts really glibly. But there's also that glib moment when Brub talks about how he got married. That's the difference in him before and now. Ray not only has his sights set on Hollywood, but he definitely takes aim at the sacred institution of matrimony as well. Nicholas Ray has a lot of things to say about marriage and being married, and I would categorize most of that as a pretty dim view of the institution. Would you include women in general in that estimation as well? No, not exactly. It feels a little differently to me. I think what we're seeing here very specifically has to do with his relationship with Graham and the source material that he's drawing on. I chalk up the anti-marriage thing to be much more anti-settling down, anti-suburban malaise than I do anti-woman. It's the straight life. It's the death of the creative. We will see that clearly delineated in a little while when we compare the two couples of Dix and Laurel and Brub and his wife, who is so unengaging that I can't even recall the name of the character right now. It's Sylvia. Okay. <laughs> As the captain and Brub are taking Dix through the details of the murder itself, how the murderer used his arm to strangle, not his hands. Dix begins to look at pictures from the crime scene, and almost under his breath we hear him say, poor kid. Do you think crime scene photos in full view of the audience were shocking right then? Do you think that was one of the things that Nicholas Ray slipped by? I guess maybe if you weren't in those burgeoning film noir audiences, especially seeing those B pictures. It had to have been. It was to me now to see her folded up body. Yeah, as venomous as all about Eve is, it doesn't have a photo of a poor girl crumpled up face down in the dirt. Well, director's cut version, maybe. <laughs> maybe. It's at this moment that Laurel Gray is ushered into the room. I want to talk for just a second about her wardrobe. I love to see her in slacks. She's generally dressed in all solids except for this checkered jacket that she has that we see her wear twice. She's very striking. The word that immediately comes to mind is self-possessed. A little unconventional to have the witness and the person of interest in the same room here. I don't know. Thinking about some other films, it seems like lineups were done where you could see the witness as well. Maybe a function of the perks of Dixon's celebrity. She's there to provide or not provide an alibi. The only person who would have seen Mildred leaving his apartment alive. She does provide this alibi. She says that she saw Mildred leave, Dix go back into his apartment, and again, while they're basically flirting over crime scene photos, talking about how interesting his face is. Is the sizzle from this chemistry their work, or is that strictly Gloria Graham doing the heavy lifting right here? When I was watching this back, looking to transcribe our scene, but also in clips in some supplemental documentaries that I was watching, this time I was watching his reaction, which I think can easily get lost because how could your eyes possibly look away from Gloria Graham? Uh, I do not know. You want to talk about intangibles. If it weren't already the case... My interest is certainly peaked now. I want to get to know this woman. Well, Dix definitely does. Tries to offer her a ride home, but she's not having it. So he's going to walk home alone and takes a moment on the way to send flowers to Mildred, a dead woman. 
just a quick bit player shout out to someone who turns out to be one of my favorites. One of those things that you don't think about when you see this. And then all of a sudden, 30 years later, there this guy is again. The kid watching the sidewalk, Davis Roberts. Did a bunch of theater, a ton of TV, was on Columbo, was on Sanford and Son multiple times. I loved this guy when I was a kid. And here I am now seeing him at the age that I was when I probably first discovered him. Also talking about connections, strangely enough, after Rope, this is the second film in a row that we've done where special attention is paid to the glass that someone had their final drink from. Dix uses that glass to wind up his agent Mel, who is waiting for him to keep their appointment. He's terrified that Dix is going to be caught up in this. Meanwhile, Dix is pumping Mel for details about Laurel. We go back and forth with that scene and back at the station where they're basically going through Dix's rap sheet, which I'm sure because of Hollywood fixers had been basically covered up. That's a rap sheet that includes numerous dust-ups, but significantly, most importantly, violence toward women. That broken nose, that was a jarring detail for me. Did it strike you the same way? Definitely, because I have one, and it doesn't feel good. For the record, I did not give you that one. No, thank you for saying that. You did not. Well, if we harbored any illusions before, we can anymore. We have to know that any allegiance that we have with this character, any pass we give him for whatever reason, even if it's just because he's Humphrey Bogart, that now makes us complicit. Absolutely, and back to what we were talking about earlier, when everything in the character says, stay away, what is inside you that makes you want to go on? Dix is still entirely focused on Laurel, though, almost as if the death of Mildred was a plot device to get him to this woman. Gloria Graham is the total package. Did I mention that? It's impossible, I would say, to resist falling in love with this woman. It would at least certainly be easy to play for Sparks opposite her. When Dix goes to see her here, there are a couple of interesting things about this scene. There are a couple of things I really like. Her delivery, and so many of those things have to do, I think, with Nick Ray's influence on this. And the extra emotional freight that the whole thing carries because of knowing of their story. Their relationship would not survive much longer than this film. They were already separated. No one knew it at the time, but they would soon be divorced. And when she talks about this gentleman that she used to take up with and says, we were thinking of getting married, it wouldn't have worked. And then on the flip side of that, when Dixon is extolling her virtues, all I can see is Nick Ray rewriting and rewriting that scene, knowing that no matter what he says, nothing is going to salvage this relationship, but still wanting to say this to her himself. It makes the tragedy infinitely more heartbreaking. He had what I would call various things to say about Gloria Graham at different <laughs> times of his life. He mentioned that he didn't like her very much, but decades later talked about how beautifully she behaved during this shoot. Just in terms of professionalism, you mean? Yes. Though, how much does the contract she had to sign work towards that? Do you know about this? I don't think so. What do you mean? Gloria Graham had to sign a contract that stipulated, in quotes, My husband shall be entitled to direct, control, advise, instruct, and even command my actions during the hours from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. every day except Sunday. I acknowledge that in every conceivable situation, his will and judgment shall be considered superior to mine and shall prevail. She was also forbidden to, in quotes, nag, cajole, 
tease, or in any other feminine fashion seek to distract or influence him. How much of this do you think was a method tactic to get her ready to play this character? Because when you watch her relationship with Bogart, even when it's at its most romantic and most loving, he always has a hand around her arm. There's never a scene that goes by that he is not exhibiting some sort of control one way or the other. So how much of that was just Nick Ray being crazy, and how much of it was actually functional for the movie? He definitely came from the method school, for sure. I don't know that she needed that. This, to me, felt a little bit more like the production side getting involved, knowing how crazy they were together, seeking to somehow exert some level of control over this production. Because they were definitely talked about. She was talked about. Though always in control of her own circumstances and always accepted the consequences that she directly created. But people in her private life cast her as a nymphomaniac or a lesbian or a bisexual. As if any of those are pejoratives. Right. Or so insecure to talk about her decisions around the plastic surgery, some of which may have even been started by Nicholas Ray himself. The stories go that she was really distracted by her upper lip. She thought it was too thin to be sexy, so she would pat it out, putting tissue or cotton underneath that, and so when a leading man would go to kiss her, he might get a mouthful of that stuff. Possibly she came up with that on her own. Possibly Nicholas Ray suggested it. And again, like Dix and Laurel, they didn't bring out the best in each other. Back again to this section, though, this is the first facet of the Laurel character. First, the vixen. I do really like that a couple of the best lines from the book were kept in the film. Which are those in particular? Oh, we'll have dinner, just not together. And that keeps Dix free to accept a dinner invitation from Brub. So he's going to go over to Brub and his wife Sylvia's house. This is the scene in the film that makes me glad I am not watching it with a contemporary audience. There's a particular moment here where he is directing the two of them as to how this murder of Mildred might have happened, and it's exaggerated. The room is darkened, a band of light is projected across his eyes to highlight his intensity, and I see a 2018 audience at the Paramount Theater laughing at this. I think it's too much for a modern audience to take. At the very least, groaning. Because he's getting so excited by watching them. How does this play in the book, out of curiosity? Or does it? You know what? I need to save that okay. because it's a right. much larger discussion about the differences in the characters. What is similar, though, is that Sylvia is concerned. She thinks that there is something wrong with Dix. She thinks there's something wrong with him, but she also casts it as being interesting. Being a murder suspect... That's the cost of being interesting rather than average and attractive like her husband. This is the part I thought you were actually going to mention earlier about modern audiences not buying when she talks about that abnormal sight class she took. Her husband makes fun of her a bit for this college education. Suck it, normies. I will take burning quickly and burning out over this suburban death one day at a time any day of the week. I'm with Nick Ray 110% right here. I'm maybe slightly more on the fence with that one. <laughs> Is that a white picket fence? Good one. I should do my own rim shots like Gabe Kaplan in that Murder, She Wrote episode. Save it for the other podcast. 
I hate to keep harping on this, but Gloria Graham should have been huge. She's huge to some of us already. She is straight up radiant in this, and maybe it's my oaky bias. She'll always be 8 Annie to me. But when you contrast her with Sylvia, especially, no contest. I think, though, in fairness, that's on point because Sylvia has those Mamie Eisenhower bangs. <laughs> it's not really fair, is it? No. As radiant as she is, he is desperate in the same way, is how this character comes across to me. And when I see that in his eyes, I realize this movie is the embodiment of that idea that men are afraid that women will embarrass them. Women are afraid that men will kill them. That was terrifying when you just said that. But it is, right? I can't see how this is anything else but the most intense distillation of that idea on screen. This is the first moment where we see one aspect of his mania, the jealousy. Does it make it doubly terrifying that it's juxtaposed with these tender moments? Their first kiss happens here. She says she's decided to be interested in him in this coy, playful way. In very short order, again with the Leave it to Beaver music, but more suitable this time because all of a sudden everything is in its right place. Domesticity, productivity, happiness, care. Is it doubly terrifying that at a moment's notice that violence can explode out of this? It is incredibly terrifying, and it comes at the time when we move into the second facet of Laurel's character, which is this mother that she turns into. I want to go back to something that Louise Brooks also pointed out, again, this parallel with Bogart to Dix, talking about his lack of energy that would be interspersed with lightning strokes of violence. And apparently, there was some incident that so frightened Lauren Bacall it was on their yacht. He had this inexplicable burst of rage and she was completely terrified by it. And how many of these cycles are we seeing play out where you're so far involved you can't get out at that point? Or you don't think to? Well, that idea of being so firmly entrenched that you're inextricable, that it leads me to a question that I did want to ask you. She so quickly becomes both mother and muse... She's assimilated to managing the household already. The speed at which their romance moves, how does that feel to you? Is it one of those things that would also feel silly to a contemporary audience? Because intense things do happen in intense circumstances, and if you know that from experience, then the speed at which they are moving is our first clue that they're never going to make it. But it seems like she always has her head up and her eyes forward. Does that save her in any way? How do you feel about the way this is going so quickly? I have a couple of thoughts here because she's as much a victim to her own nature, which is that she should know better and she's also hiding. I think it's really interesting that there is still a separation that occurs. She is kind of taking over this house, nurturing him, helping him, caring for him, but they haven't ever officially moved in together. So there's no consummation implied. There's more the implication of a close relationship with her masseuse that's coming over than with him. I disagree slightly. I do think that there's an insinuation of consummation, but I think that she still has and will always have one foot at least in the door's threshold. Though I do understand that idea of intensity. We went through an intense experience together as well. So I guess I'm railing against not breaking these cycles and yet I am part of one to a certain extent. Again, to be clear, 
You never broke my nose. <laughs> I just mean the intensity of love and a very, very fast courtship. Basically, I came to your house and never left. Well, I wouldn't say a very fast courtship. There was a year between our first kiss and the day we got married. That's probably kind of fast to some people. I guess so, but definitely not in this case. Nope. She does have her eyes opened, as you mentioned, and it's not like he unloads with both barrels right away. We start to awaken to the full intensity of his nature, as she does. Now, meanwhile, the cops still really like Dixon for this murder, and they bring Laurel into the station unbeknownst to him to essentially try to frighten her or wake her up. They suspect him first and foremost. We know that there was the boyfriend of Mildred, but they seem to be refusing to look at him as a suspect. So Laurel has got this in one ear. She's got Martha, her masseuse, as you mentioned, in her other ear. Martha specifically spills the beans about that broken nose detail. So she definitely has the worst of the information at her disposal. I think it's really interesting that that woman, Frances, the girlfriend that he beat up, she was the first woman that we met back at Paul's very early in the film, being pretty lovey-dovey with him. Is that supposed to be another indictment of Hollywood or of women in general? I'm saying strictly Hollywood, because Paul's is a cesspool. Everyone is on the make constantly. There's nothing going on there ever except what is in this for me. I think it's fair to say at this point, Laurel's starting to have some doubts, or at least these voices are in her head. Well, the two couples are now at the beach, and they're having a picnic, and we have one of these instances that you referred to where all of a sudden, Dixon has one of his outbursts. Sylvia, the drip, spills the beans that the investigation into Dixon is ongoing, and he leaves in a complete rage. He is out of control. He sideswipes a guy, and then proceeds to pull him out of his car and almost beat him to death. It becomes very clear that he is very capable of murder, and it may just be dumb luck that he hasn't done it already. I want to reiterate that. We almost see Humphrey Bogart beat another man to death with a rock. It's really scary, and she has to try to make him laugh at this point to pull him out of this. And that's the worst part. She's being incredibly reasonable, talking about how there's no justification for acting like this. There's nothing that this guy has done that should end in his death. Is this the moment, though, to add in a personal anecdote? I was just talking with you about the feelings I have when we go to the movies, thinking that if there's a time when you're not there to hold me back, I could end up actually physically assaulting someone. So who's the crazy one now? Take notice, everyone. If you're at the movies and you see us there and you talk in the theater, I might have to take a rock out of Erica's hand to keep her from smashing your brains in. And it's something that I feel deep inside me. I feel the rage coming up. It's funny to me, though, because it's only at such very specific things. I don't see equal treatment of other greater injustices. It's just theater talkers and dumb neighbors. So does that fall under the category of acceptable insanity? I haven't My left targets? yet. So. <laughs> I think it makes sense that we're now up to the section I call, I love you, but I'm afraid of you. It's at the end of this, during the cool down period that he's going through, where he pulls over and there's that hint of the murder scene as he described it to Brub and Sylvia. Arm around the neck, 
not just a hint of danger, but the outright threat of danger. She is in peril and stays there for the rest of the film. He still is insisting that he was in the right and has generally been in the right in these situations. You've said the same. I most likely have. I'm going to go with you on that. Again, she's trying to be reasonable. He seems to calm down, but at this point, she has to be thinking, how do I get out of this if she's smart? But is she smart? He turns that all of a sudden, and again, in the manipulative way that abusers do, he lays on the romance. He recites a passage to her that he wrote in this screenplay. I was born when she kissed me. I died when she left me. I lived a few weeks while she loved me. The clock is already ticking on this now, if we didn't know that already. Well, after he goes to the police station to basically threaten them as well, in the guise of being assertive, ask me if you want to know something. Don't put Laurel in the middle of this. Laurel has gone over to Sylvia's to apologize on his behalf. And he's trotted out this idea, which I think was definitely popular then and probably still is. To what extent does the artistic temperament justify any sort of behavior? And Laurel doesn't think that it does. She fully now believes that there is something up with Dix, but that she cannot tell him this for fear, I'm assuming, of what he will do. She can't say, I love you, but I'm afraid of you. Sylvia just advises her to go away. But if you've watched enough Identification Discovery Channel... (laughs) shows you know that's never going to work. So what's your option if you're Laurel? You do what she does right here? Is she smart handling it this way? Which is playing along? Do you think she's formulated the escape plan yet? I think that she's in full-on distract him mode. Agree to all of these things until she can make this escape. Dix is at her apartment. Again, they've stayed separate through this. He absolutely wants to get married. Yes or no, will you marry me? She agrees. And privately looks completely terrified. She's falling back on trying to call Martha. She confides in Mel, who has stopped by to see the progress of the script, that she's completely scared. She doesn't trust him. She's not even sure she trusts her own recollection of that night. Maybe he did kill Mildred. So she's saying yes while every fiber of her being is screaming no. And we have that insidious thing that you referred to about the artistic temperament and the way it rears its head here when she asks, why can't he just be like other people? And then Mel, his longtime enabler, says, you can't hurt him like this. He asks, essentially, would you have liked him if he was normal and you have to take it all? And she feels ashamed by this, as if love is supposed to encompass terror. Dix is thinking about this thing from two particular viewpoints. One, the obsessive controlling aspect of his personality, and two, like a writer. To him, this is perfect. This is storybook. He is so deluded that he cannot see what is truly happening here. As they're having breakfast that morning, when he is asking her to marry him, He is waxing rhapsodic about what a beautiful scene this is and how clearly it indicates that they love each other. And I believe that is completely true. I believe he truly loves her. And I believe she truly loves him. So in one regard, he's completely right. Just not the way he thinks he is. It's not what he sees. A good love scene, he says, should be about something other than people telling each other how in love they are. 
And if that's the metric, then this is a doozy of a love scene because it is saying so much more than that. I think that that's a great example of another really interesting aspect of this film, which is its take on screenwriting and an example of great screenwriting. I do think that they really love each other. And like you mentioned, it is about something else other than just love. It's love at this breaking point. This is something that I like in the character in the film and in the character in the book. They lack a key piece of self-awareness in different degrees, and they really haven't realized that they haven't gotten away with it. And Dix is still in this manic stage of making all of these plans for their future. Laurel's been convinced essentially by Mel that if he gets a piece of good news, maybe that will also distract him. So she gives Mel the finished script, unbeknownst to Dix. And now the whole group is at Paul's. They're there to celebrate the upcoming wedding. And again, because Dix is in this different world, it takes the drunken actor Charlie to notice that Laurel has been biting her nails when she should be at her happiest. It's Frances again who lets drop that she's been reading this script. And Dix immediately flies off the handle and thinks that he hasn't been told about this because evidently Mel must not have liked it, the producer must hate it. All while Laurel gets a call, Dix insists that she take the call right then at the table. It's Martha, and he punches Mel. This guy really knows how to throw an engagement party. He also knows how to throw a phone, too, which is really scary to watch. The worst is him going to apologize but not apologize to Mel, and it seems like he just reeks of quiet shame at that point. And the cycle of enabling just goes on and on and on. While all of this has happened, Laurel has taken her opportunity to get away. She's gone. Brub has been trying to find Dix because Kessler, the boyfriend, has finally confessed he's tried to commit suicide as well. Dix has gotten back to the apartment trying to find Laurel. He's banging on her door. She's lying to him, saying she's in bed. Unfortunately, she lets him in. So it's now a chase through the apartment. Even as he's saying he will never let that happen again, he sees that she's not wearing her ring, demands that she puts it on, thinks that there's someone in the bedroom. The phone rings, terribly, terrible timing. He takes it, and it's this flight to New York that she's arranged, her final escape. Significantly, he passively delivers the news to her rather than her taking the call. And that's the last straw. As he's telling her he will never let her go, he starts to strangle her. She begs him to stop, and it's another phone call that saves her. Finally, Brub has gotten through, and he tells Laurel the news that it's not Dick's, that the captain wants to apologize. This is my absolute favorite part, when she says, very believably, Yesterday, this would have meant so much to us. Now, it doesn't matter at all. And not just for the sentiment expressed or for the performance of the line. I really like how these calls mirror one another. How each one of them passively delivers this crushing blow to the other while calmly looking the other one dead in the eye. The other thing I like about this specific instance, the significance of her calling it off. After all this, it's her that is declaring in no uncertain terms that it is over and there is nothing to be done about it now. A better, more specific title might be In The Lonely Place 
as absolute and bleak as this ending is. She's moved into that third facet, to victim. But finally, I guess, opens her eyes wide enough to know that he's still a violent drunk. How do you feel watching her deliver those same lines from that screenplay as he walks away? It's the perfect epigram for the film. And it's one of those things that I think, again, works in 1950, doesn't work in 2018. But we've gone through such an intense experience. That melodrama pitched that high, it fits it perfectly. I have a question or two for you. Does it matter at all that Steele is innocent, considering the capacity for destruction that he's demonstrated? We've seen him attempt murder. (laughs) So I don't think that it matters that he was innocent of that specific crime. He's committed more just in the brief amount of time we've spent with him. This last 10-15 minutes of this thing is stomach-churning for me. It's kind of a hard watch for me. And in particular, that is because I relate to his volatility, to this innate anger at being surrounded by people that don't understand or don't care to put in the effort. I feel a similar capacity for destruction, self and otherwise. So that aspect of it is unpleasant to have Ray put that right in my face because I also feel like there is little that I can do about it other than just occasionally remove myself from everything, sometimes even including you. And that's more for everyone else's benefit than my own. He makes no bones about what an ugly impulse it is. I don't feel the same desperation that I sense in this character, but I feel a lot of the other things acutely so in some cases. So their fate as a couple is not ambiguous at all. That's over. What about their individual outcomes? Does she recover from this? When he's walking off, what is he walking toward? I don't feel hopeful in any way. They're never going to escape their natures. I think that's a sign of the great screenwriting. He just has fewer years left than she does. But I think, again, the mirror into real life, they both died at age 57, though many years apart. Those are short lives, and I think that those characters would have had the same short lives. I would like to think that she woke up and stopped hiding, at least from the wrong people, but it seems like a cycle that would be doomed to perpetuate itself. I feel slightly differently about it. I think she makes it, he doesn't. He may well go on writing screenplays for the next 40 years, but he might as well be dead. This was his last shot. And even though she's been around the block a little bit, she has a resilience and a youth that I think sees her through. Though I imagine it's no picnic for her either. The thing I'm really fixing on when I think she makes it, she was never as desperate never as all-in as he was. She was never as fully invested. She maintained a distance because of constantly having to ponder his guilt or innocence, so the benefit of that long-term is that she's able to recover in a way that he never will. That at least one foot out the door all the time. When we talk, both on the show and just in our regular lives, we decry irony a lot when we talk about pop culture. But I think that we should specify we mean a particular contemporary brand of unearned irony. The type that people use to distance themselves from actually admitting to feeling anything. This is irony, but of a different type. This is true and unavoidable, but provides no distance whatsoever from pain. They meet because he's a murder suspect. They forge a relationship that is unsustainable. And what undoes them, at least partially, is the stress of an investigation that ultimately exonerates him, 
of a specific murder, like you say, but the process reveals him to be wholly capable of the act in general. Just to add to what you were saying, it's that irony that's based on contempt for something or someone that I dislike. This is deep sadness. So I want to come back again to Nicholas Ray. He said, Artists should not put their own neuroses on screen. Hold the laughter. <laughs> Too late. And at this point, I don't think anyone could watch this and think that he kept to that mantra. Not just with this, but with his entire career. That's why I gravitate to what he does. And I don't see neuroses as a bad thing, necessarily. But it really seemed as though, in many instances that we mentioned, that he was acting out these feelings, trying to make sense of them possibly trying to bring order to his marriage or to his wife in a different way. And I want to talk about the ending of the film specifically. It was fully written that Dixon was going to strangle Laurel, but Ray got to that point and felt strongly that he didn't want to see violence end the relationship, that relationships didn't have to end that way. It reminds me of that story about when they're making The Killing of a Chinese Bookie. And Cassavetes, who so hated violence, gets to the end and is trying to find any way not to kill the Chinese bookie. It's so true. And then he would undercut that concept again and again and again in his own life. And so instead, he rewrote the entire thing. He kicked everybody off of the set. It was just he and Bogart and Graham and the cinematographer. And that leads me also back to the book. The book is incredibly bleak. I'll get to that in just a moment. But in general, it was also thought that at the time, if they had kept that same ending, that audiences wouldn't have responded in the same way, that it wouldn't have been as marketable. You haven't read the book at this point, correct? Not yet. Okay. Do you mind if I talk a little bit about no, it? No, I'm curious to have this difference outlined. I really want to know. Actually, I want to read it, but yes, I want to hear what you have to say. You're going to love it. It's amazing. I do want to say, though, that Dorothy Hughes was not bothered by all the changes that were made. She loved Gloria Graham's performance as well. Completely understandable. The book feels very modern to me. It actually reminds me quite a lot of the Tom Ripley character by Patricia Highsmith. Dixon Steele in the book is basically a sociopath who is claiming to be a writer to get money from a rich uncle. There's no doubt that he's a serial murderer, and the perspective into that character was an incredibly new thing. I mentioned earlier that I like in both versions that they never quite realize that they are not as slick as they think they are. One of the ways I find that so interesting in the book is with the character of Sylvia. This is why I wanted to wait. In the book, Sylvia is dashing a dynamic, the engine of the story. She's not, but she's a lot more interesting, actually. He thinks immediately that Sylvia is really attracted to him. He thinks that all women are incredibly enthralled by him. And it's actually she that is the champion of getting Laurel away from him. She senses, she can smell it on him, that there is something wrong. And luckily, Brub believes her. I'm actually a little disappointed that they didn't go the route of keeping Dixon as the killer because I find that character to be so subversive. He's completely convinced of his power, his hold over women, his universal attractiveness, but we see the creep inside. It somehow feels extremely modern, timeless, and also prescient at the same time. Now, through all of this, Nicholas Ray 
decided to make those changes because he said he was more interested in doing a film about the violence in all of us, rather than a mass murder film or one about a psychotic. I'm going to do a little dream casting of the novel to film instead. There's a moment when Dixon is working and he's in a short sleeve shirt and he reminds me a lot of Glenn Ford at the time. Okay, I was just waiting for you to say Billy Zane. Oh, <laughs> no. So I'd like to go back into our time machine, make another adaptation of the novel that sticks to its story and cast Glenn Ford as the serial murderer. So then did we cover everything well enough as far as why you chose the film, do you feel like? I think so. I don't think I've left anything out. It obviously resonates with you quite a bit. I would say it does the same for me. I would have chosen it too if you hadn't, for two reasons mainly. One, it's purity. It is a bruise in cinematic form and a bruise that never heals. It is hurt at 24 frames per second. Second, this is Nicholas Ray leaving everything on the court. Every suspicion about his wife, every cynical doubt of Hollywood's commercial machinery, Every bit of self-loathing and compromising himself as an artist. The lack of room there is for love to grow in a space wholly occupied by, quote, artistic temperament, unquote. It's hard to think of similar examples from the time that are such distillations of their creators. One, because filmmakers weren't often this unguarded about their own anger and paranoia. And two, because I don't think studios or independent production companies even, as in this case, were all that interested in putting out something so raw and idiosyncratic as a general rule. We're lucky it got made at all with so little interference and by a filmmaker so clever. We've certainly talked a lot about how terrific Gloria Graham is, and that's what leads me to my recommendation. I chose my other favorite performance of hers, and that's in The Big Heat from 1953, directed by Fritz Long with Glenn Ford, whom I've also mentioned several times, Lee Marvin and Jeanette Nolan. It's about a cop on the trail of a gang he suspects has killed his wife and has a hold over the police force he works for. Gloria Graham, as Debbie in this, the gangster's girlfriend, is incredible. I almost feel like in a movie that I love, she's working in another plane. Is this where the character from In a Lonely Place ends up three years later? I wonder, after a whole lot more alcohol, possibly, yes. My favorite part, the part that always lives with me, is hop, Debbie, hop. When she's obviously smarter than everybody else in the room. And how about your recommendation? My recommendation is the film Lightning Over Water from 1980, and it's a documentary about Nicholas Ray's final days of his life that he made in conjunction with Vim Vendors. Ray had terminal cancer when they were shooting this in 1979, and the thing I think I love the most about it, Vendor's deep affection and admiration for Ray is obvious and touching. And Ray is a man after my own heart, wanting to die working even though he is quite ill. I admire both men's approach to mortality and the way they portray it matter-of-factly. You see Ray lecturing, presenting his films both finished and unfinished. You see true friendship between peers and collaborators. You see ruminations on what it means to no longer exist that are insightful and direct. Honest, industrious, and no-nonsense to the very end, it is a must for Nicholas Ray fans. As always, that's two great recommendations, The Big Heat and Lightning Over Water. And that brings us to the end of episode 75. I have to say, we put out the call we mentioned on our previous episode 
that I left my job recently to devote my life to full-time podcasting, at least for the next year. And I'm a little overwhelmed and more grateful than I can say over how much our friends and listeners have rallied to the cause. We have a long list of new Patreon patrons this time, and I wanted to say thanks to them first and foremost. Clancy Hiscox, Summer Ann Burton, Michael Hutchins, Doug and Jamie over at Good Times Great Movies, Brian Sauer, Chad Engelbert, Sarah Below, Jesse Athey, Susan Agee, Matt Schlee, Shelley Sampon, Dan Grissom, Chris Phillips, Eric Reese, and Aaron West. I want to say a particular thank you to Aaron because not only did he increase his pledge to the show, but he invited me on his show, Criterion Now, recently. And we had a really fun discussion about everything that is going on in the world of Criterion and Filmstruck. We always love going on Aaron's show. We appreciate that, Aaron, very much. If you would like to take a look at the Patreon and see what perks we offer over there, you can go to patreon.com slash magiclantern. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast in any of those places. We are on Twitter, at Lantern underscore cast. And I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who shared the show or has given us feedback since last time. Mike Scharf, Jan Willis, Susan Eubanks, Jeannie Howell, Bryce Wilson, Keith Rich, Scott Morris, Craig Eastman, and Drew Tavendale over at Fuds on Film. Travis Trudell, Tim Lego, Rob Langley, Jason Beamish, John Laubinger, Audie Christianos, Matteo Boscarol, Grindhouse Dave, the folks over at the podcast Movies Unhacked, Michael Cannon, and Andy Wolverton. We are very lucky to have a lot of great and supportive friends. Thank you all so much. You can find the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, just about anywhere you find podcasts will be there. If you would like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. <laughs>